If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 18, John chapter 18, John chapter 18, we'll open with just a word of prayer, let's pray, Father we thank you so much for just a a wonderful time of music, time to sing your praises, you are you are a name above all names. Um, Lord, there is, we are so dependent upon you. You are so gracious. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to call you our God. And thank you for being that rock, that stability in our life, that shelter, that place to hide, that sure confidence. Lord, we... Uh, Pray that you would bless our time together as we look into your word. May it touch our hearts. May there be stuff here. Maybe there be principles here that will stand out and apply to our life. As your scripture is relevant, it is relevant to our lives. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of standing and proclaiming this word. May we obey it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was, uh, no, a few years back when I was in seminary, and actually before seminary, I, I took a, a class in crisis counseling. Crisis counseling. Now you can imagine what that would be like. That's how to talk people off of bridges, how to te- keep people from committing suicide. You, you're dealing with people who have just, uh, are at the bottom of the barrel, whose whole a world has just crumbled and they're at the place of taking their own life. It's an emergency situation. Um, maybe their life is based upon something that they thought was, was a reality when uh, all it was was a house of cards that just collapsed, just fell. And some of, the, some of those uh, events, some of those crisis moments comes as a result of of just facing reality or facing a, a revelation about yourself or about your world and you realize the person that I was married to has had an affair and doesn't love me or the world that you were living in was not quite what you thought it was. Sometimes it can be a, those moments of revelation. And many times we live our life based upon things that are wrong, wrong ideas. And... Um, And when we find out the truth, how our thinking has to shift, it's kind of odd to us to uh, uh, think any other way. Now, let me try to give you an example of this. Can you imagine being back in the times when they thought that the world was flat? The world was flat. You go so far and you're going to drop off. You 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 can't take the ship that far. No, no, I think we can. I think the world is round. And so, and they discovered the world is round and how that's going to change your thinking. The world is round? Wow. What can we do now? Their whole thinking, their whole worldview changes. Or when they first looked into the microscope and saw the cell, and they begin to see that these little micro, these little animals under this, uh, under this microscope, we're making people sick. And we can approach healing people in a different way. And, and everything changes. Everything changes. Up to that point, 
they had tried things that just didn't work and it, nothing made sense in that world or in the flat earth. It just, it just didn't work. It didn't seem to be right. But then when we find out the world is round, we find out there's little microorganisms in there that's causing people to be sick and then we can, then it makes sense. Then we could see reality. And we begin to realize, man, what were we basing everything on before? Is this the house of cards and it all comes crumbling down with the truth of reality? Now, a practical example of this, and this is a minor example, but yesterday my son and I were coming to the church. We were coming this way. He was going past the church. And we were coming from the house and we had two separate cars. And he goes down Raleigh Hill and I hop on the interstate. I saw him going down Raleigh Hill and I thought... We've always wondered which is faster, going down Raleigh Hill, going straight, or hopping on the interstate where you can go much faster and coming down that hill. I always said, I always said, Raleigh Hill is much faster because it's direct. Well, I didn't hurry or anything. I, I took the interstate who took Raleigh Hill, and I beat him. I beat him. My world came crashing down. What I thought was a reality was not a reality. And I was wrong. And I have to apologize to my wife because she's been telling me. Because she goes the other way. I go the Raleigh Hill. That's just a small example. We think something is true and we build our, our habits around it. We build our life around it. And then we begin to realize, wait a second, maybe that's not true. Or some crisis in our lives reveals that that's not right. And our whole world just comes crashing down. Now, it's a minor thing when you're just taking a direct, uh, getting directions to the church or something like that. But it's a major thing when you're dealing with spiritual issues, isn't it? It's not just a, the V8 moment where you, you pop yourself on the head and say, wow, I could have had a V8. No, this is serious. This is serious. This is sobering when you're dealing with the spiritual realm. We think we have it right. We build our house upon this uh, foundation and we realize, boy, we have it wrong. Now, that's exactly what is going to happen to Peter on this day. Peter is about to enter a, a tailspin in his life. And it will wind up being the worst day of his life. This, this morning, early morning. And this is going to be the day that he realizes that his worldview is wrong. He's going to realize that he is not as spiritually strong as he thought he was. He's going to realize that the responsibilities that he thought he was fulfilling as a good disciple were not the right responsibilities. And he wasn't such a good disciple. He's going to realize that, that he is actually fighting against God as opposed to fighting with God. And he's going to realize that he's not that good of a disciple. And his world is going to come crashing down. It's a crisis. It's a crisis moment. Major crises tend to expose the heart, tend to make us focus on ourselves and realize our wrong thinking, wrong habits based upon wrong thinking. And the way we really are, crisis tends to do that. But now this passage isn't just about Peter. This passage is about Jesus Christ. This book, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel of John, 
John is giving us a history, not just a history about Jesus. The other Gospels do that as well. He is giving us uh, information. He is pulling out events and details within the events to point us in a certain direction. For example, he is giving us a picture. He's wanting us to see Christ in a certain light. He wants us to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is deity. And he gives us the details and the events that that point to those things. He's pulling those things out. So when he tells us about the arrest of Jesus, he is emphasizing the facts of his deity. The, the, uh, he's emphasizing the reality of his being God, his being God. And that's exactly what we see in this passage today, that he is God That Jesus Christ was the absolute master of this situation. Jesus had complete knowledge of the situation. And that dictated every action. Everything was under His control. And the picture that we see that John paints for us is the picture of a lamb being led to the slaughter. That's what it is. And it's just in time. This is the Passover. They had just eaten the Passover uh, meal the night before and he had been with them and he had talked with them and and Jesus um, even had said in chapter 10 he had said that he was giving up his life that no one takes it from him but he lays it down and he is he is that lamb he is the lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world he is he is the one who's giving up his life and he does it with such grace he does it with such grace this would have been a picture that the Jews would have been very familiar with. The, during the, the Passover, every family, the original Passover in Exodus chapter 12, the original, every family had to go out and they had to choose a little goat or a little lamb and they bring that little lamb in to their home. It was pre-selected and it was brought in and they would keep that little lamb in there for uh, some time. And it had to be a male. It had to be perfect. No flaws. And it had to get killed at the, at the evening time or, or at dusk. And no blemishes. And at Passover, that lamb was to be killed. His blood was to be taken and put on the doorposts of the house. And uh, the house then would have been spared from death. Uh, Jesus then was, was that lamb. He was the one that was brought in. He was the one selected. And this is the picture that we see. But this also, this passage also tells us another thing. There's one other element to this passage. And that's just about discipleship. (laughs) Discipleship. Christ expects His disciples to demonstrate the same grace that He does. He expects them to be just as gracious, just as loving, just as meek and mild and humble as He does. Now He told His disciples this. Probably many years ago. I don't know if they'd remember it by this point. But here's what he said. A disciple is, is not above his teacher. Nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. That's the point of being a disciple. You submit yourself to someone else's teaching. And you want to become like them. That's, that's the point. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher. And the slave to become like his master. And that's the, that's the level, that's the standard. Christ 
becomes the standard then for his disciples. And he, he handles this crisis situation with such grace. He becomes a model for us. The, the night before, he'd, he had done some teaching with his disciples. And, and, he, um, uh, and now it's the day of his crucifixion. And now the time has come. Here's what I want us to see. In the time of crisis, here's the point. In the time of crisis, crisis, Christians are to emulate Christ's gracious response, not impulsive reactions. And we have a contrast here. We have Peter and we have Jesus. Two responses, two reactions to the same crisis. And here's the question that we'll answer. How can Christians respond to crisis in a way that pleases God? How can we do that? Well, Jesus gives us the perfect example of how to do that. And there's two different ways. We see what to do and what not to do. We'll see first, from Peter's standpoint, what not to do. And then we'll see what to do. But you see, two different responses to crisis. You might want to say it like this. Two different responses to the sovereign hand of God in your life. Two different responses to the sovereign hand of God in your life. Let's look first at the context, the first seven or eight, uh, nine verses here. The context. Verse number 1, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine to the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. There's a few things that you need to know there. He had just finished up the Passover. They had eaten the Passover together. Um, they, they had left. He said they went forth. Probably not just went forth from that room. They were in an upper room, but probably went forth from Jerusalem. He may have even been talking to them while they were re- walking through the streets of Jerusalem. They go over the, the uh, hill there in Jerusalem and down the valley and up the other side. That valley is the Kidron Valley. They would have gone up the other side to a garden, it says. A garden... And we know the name of that garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, it means olive press. And this would have been of olive garden. And the term that's used here, he entered with his disciples, indicates that there was a wall around this. There was an enclosed space. He he entered with his disciples. an olive press. They would have they would have gathered the olives from this olive grove. They would have crushed them, and they would have olive oil, and they would have used that. There's a a lot that would have been done with those olives. It, it would probably a whole industry. The indication here is that this is a privately held garden, or privately uh, held uh, maybe uh, company, if you would, from this family. And and Jesus knows this family, and they have granted him permission to come and be in this garden whenever he wants. That's the idea. Now, John doesn't say much about, between verses 1 and 2, about what happened in the garden. It was a time when Jesus had entered the garden, the time that we read, that Tim read for us. He enters the garden, he leaves his disciples, he goes a little bit further out, and he prays. He comes back and he sees his disciples are not praying, they're asleep, and he warns them, he says, pray. Pray with me, lest you enter into temptation. And he says, pray, and he goes away, and he prays some more. He comes back, and he finds his disciples asleep. That's this time. So that's what's going on. Now, in verse 2, 
after this time of prayer, he comes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. He's, he's talking with them and he knows what's going to come upon him. And he says in verse 2, And Jonas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus knew, or uh, Judas knew that Jesus was going to be there at this particular place. Yet, Jesus didn't try to hide. He didn't break his routine. This was his routine, and he stuck with it, even though Judas knew. Now, Judas was the one who was going to betray him. Judas had left earlier. And Jesus knew all of these things, but it was in the plan of God. This was the place. This was the time. Jesus knew that. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now Judas then, he goes out, betrays Jesus, he gets his money, he brings these men, it says a Roman cohort. A cohort would have been like a battalion, we might call a battalion, uh, but that would have been about 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers, a cohort would be. Now he probably didn't bring the whole, uh, the whole cohort, all of them, just like we might say that the fire department came and put out the fire. Well, the whole fire department didn't come. A few men from the fire department came. And that's the idea here. And, and estimates are probably around 200. When Paul was being escorted out, there was 450 some uh, of the uh, Roman guards. So, so you have probably a couple hundred Roman soldiers coming out. They have torches. They have weapons they're they're ready for war they're ready for war they do not want a riot they want this to be quick and quiet if they have to search these men out they will they're ready to do that they're ready for war verse 4 says jesus knew jesus knowing all of these things and were coming upon all these things were coming upon him he went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. And, he, and when he had said, I am he, he they drew back, including, including Judas. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, there's a few things that we need to notice here. Jesus, first of all, goes forth. He knows what's going on. Like I said, deity, full control of what's going on in the situation. And he asked them, who do you seek? Who do you seek? And they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they didn't expect to see him coming out to greet them. Of course, Judas betrays him with the kiss. But he says, uh, who do you seek? And he says, I am he. Now, in the Greek, there is no he there. It's just, I am And that's powerful because that is the name of God that we see from the very beginning in in Exodus chapter 4 or Exodus chapter 3. That's the name of God. The name of God. And when He said, I am, He is taking on the name of God. And that's with power and all the authority that comes with that. And what is He? What happens? They just, they're just hit. It's like a concussion, just some kind of invisible force that they're just hit with and they're knocked to the ground. They fall to the ground. Now, some people would say, well, that was just an accident. Maybe they were all following too close. Maybe Jesus startled them in the dark. Maybe uh, 
uh, they weren't expecting to see him. Maybe some one of the first ones tripped and, and the rest of them, like dominoes, fell on top of them. These were Roman soldiers. That was no accident. That was a miracle. That was from the power of God. His very name, his very name had power with it. And it, they had to ask themselves, who is this man? He is going willingly. He had the authority, he had the power to, to overtake them. And he makes them look foolish, but yet he just goes willingly. But now notice what he does in verse 7. Therefore he asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those you have given me, I have not lost one. Jesus says, let these men go. I'm the one you're seeking. I'm the one that you're after. Let these men go. Now, you see the crisis. For these men, this is a crisis. Their, their shepherd, their teacher is being led away. Their world is being crumbled. Their world is being turned upside down. And this is a major crisis for these Men, Jesus had prepared them for this moment, but they don't seem to be prepared. This is a crisis. Jesus was being arrested. And there's two responses to this crisis. In verse 10, we see Peter's response. Peter's response. In fact, Peter's impulsive response. You see that? Peter's impulsive response. This is what not to do in crisis. This is, this is not the way to act in a crisis. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Peter, he responded with, a, with an impulsive reaction. In fact, number one... The first way we can learn from Peter and what not to do is Peter gave a quick emotional reaction. A quick emotional reaction. Those terms go together. A quick, and it's not a lot of thinking, it's just an emotional reaction. He gave a quick emotional reaction. And he was wrong. This was the wrong thing to do at this particular time. He was not really acting like a disciple, like a learner. He was not submitting himself and watching his teacher to see how his teacher was going to respond. He was not observing and listening carefully. He was not trying to pick up on Jesus' attitude toward these men. No, he saw his moment and he grabbed his sword. And the sword is used there, indicates more of a dagger, a shorter sword. And he pulls it and he swipes and Malchus probably ducks and, and Peter catches his ear and Cuts off his ear. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Peter, but Peter at this time was not responding in the way he should be responding. He he doesn't have the self-control that he needs to. He should have been watching his, uh, his teacher and seeing what his teacher was going to do. He was not really exercising the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, self-control. He wasn't doing that. In fact, Jesus, or Peter had a hard time with, with following. He had a hard time with that. Now that gives me some comfort because sometimes I have a hard time following leaders. Jesus 
ultimately had to set Peter down and just say to him, in the end of John, the end of John chapter 21, he had to say to Peter, Peter, and Peter turned around and he saw a disciple whom Jesus loved following him. And he says, well, what about this guy? Peter, uh, seeing him, and said, uh, what about this man? And, and Jesus said to him, he had to just flat out tell Peter. Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He had to just speak really plain to Peter in very simple words. You follow me. You keep your eye on me. Now, Jesus, or Peter at this time, was not being a good follower. He is not being a good learner. He's not being a good disciple. He's, he's reactionary. He's just an emotional response. Also, Peter had the wrong mindset. Number two, Peter had the wrong mindset. Now, often, be, because of a wrong mindset, we give an emotional response. Those emotional responses comes from the wrong thinking. What we already have in our mind. Now, Peter was thinking already, and with the other disciples, that Jesus was getting ready to set up his earthly kingdom. He was going to set up a, a political kingdom. And maybe, just maybe, when Peter uh, saw that, that Jesus just, with his name, speaking out, his name uh, brought the Roman soldiers to their knees. They fell back and he thought, maybe this is my time. So he grabs his sword and so... Maybe in his mind, he was thinking of the political kingdom. And remember, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he and James and John were kind of fighting and jockeying for that position. This is it. This is the time. Jesus is going to conquer the Romans. And he was wrong. His thinking was wrong. It was a house of cards. It was, it was all faulty. It was all wrong. The... the teaching that he had uh, heard from Jesus had not really changed his life. Think about that. Jesus had taught them the teaching had not really settled into his thinking. Maybe he hadn't just processed it. Maybe he just misunderstood the, the circumstances and they fit his thinking at this particular time. Maybe he wasn't listening carefully when Jesus taught on these things. Maybe he's just like us that, yep, Jesus taught and I just missed it. Jesus taught it, but man, it just didn't sink into my mind. I just didn't learn. I wasn't there for that lesson. That, that's so much like... The rest of us, Jesus did teach these things. In fact, starting in chapter 13, if you remember 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, Jesus was telling these things. Here's what's going to have to happen. And the kingdom was not coming at that time, but they still did not seem to get it. But Jesus, Peter was still responsible for Jesus' teaching, even though he may not have gotten it. Now, there's a principle that Jesus... Uh, that uh, the book of Matthew points out to us. In this same event, Matthew chapter 26, uh, here's, what, here's what Matthew says of this event. It says, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew his sword and struck off the slave's ear of the high priest and cut off, uh, cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into the place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. 
Jesus appeals to the one basic little principle that Peter seemed like Peter should have known. You, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, Peter. That's not something that's in the church. That's not the way we do things. We do not do things by force, Peter. It's just not the way we operate. Not the way we operate. Peter had to learn a different kind of leadership here. Now, in John's Gospel, he's pointing out the fact Jesus goes on to say, put away your sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not, shall I not drink of it? And he appeals to, he appeals to Peter from the responsibility that he has to what's going on. That Peter just, Peter just could not get it. He, he, he was reacting on his own thinking, not on the thinking that, that Jesus had taught them to use, but his own thinking. And I think we do the same thing so often. I, I think we, we, we just kind of go along and, and based upon our own, based upon our own maybe moral judgments, we live our Christian life, we live the life, and God has so much more to say about our circumstances and we don't really look into it. We kind of listen half-heartedly. Not a good learner, a good disciple, a good follower listens carefully. Peter had missed that. And we are learners, aren't we? We're disciples and we have to be intent. We have to be purposeful about learning what the Bible has to say. And we need to learn everything that has to say about a biblical perspective on all of life. And Peter was just learning this lesson. Let's go on. There's another problem that Peter had was that uh, Peter was spiritually unprepared. He was spiritually unprepared. If you're in Matthew, or still in Matthew, he, he proclaims this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, he said, Peter said to them, and Jesus, and he's probably referring to all these other disciples here. He says, even though all of these may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, Jesus, or Peter had just said this not too long ago. He was bold. Even in this situation, he was bold. And I don't doubt Peter's heart that he, was, he loved Christ and he was loyal to Christ. And he uh, was bold in that way. But yet he was reacting on this flesh in his flesh and and with wrong thinking he didn't definitely didn't realize the timing of god and god's plan in fact let's look at the passage that was read for us earlier jesus had gone out to the garden of gethsemane and he set the disciples down and he goes off to pray and he comes back and here's what he has to tell peter he comes back to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter specifically, said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch for me or watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Jesus himself warned Peter. Peter was warned. Peter denied Christ, Peter was going to deny Christ. Peter, uh, Jesus had warned him about that. Jesus told him, stay awake, watch and pray. Don't enter into temptation. And he also said, Peter, the flesh is weak. Be warned. Be warned. I like what uh, John Calvin says about this. He says, um, it was extremely 
thoughtless in Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword, while he could not do so by his tongue. When he is called to uh, make confession, he denies. But now, unbidden by his master, he raises a riot. Warned by such a striking example, let us learn to moderate our zeal. I like that. Moderate our zeal. And as a, a wantonness of our flesh ever itches to dare more than God commands, let us learn that our zeal will turn out badly whenever we dare to undertake anything beyond God's word. When we dare to undertake anything beyond God's word. He was going beyond what he saw of Christ, beyond what Christ was doing. And he was using force. In general, number four, Peter was just simply not resting in the sovereignty of God. He was not resting in the sovereignty of God. Now, like I said, I don't want to be too hard on, the, on Peter. Because granted, he did not have the Holy Spirit at this time. Peter does get it. Let me read you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes this years and years later. He says this, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober. Same word. Be sober, he says. Be on the alert. The adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a little bit, a little while, the God of all grace who called you out of eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. God is in control. Peter was learning God's sovereignty. Peter was learning God's sovereignty. And he sees within himself that he's a bad disciple. He hadn't learned what Christ taught. He wasn't really following Christ in this moment. Who determines? Because if you look at Peter, you'd think, man, he's a good disciple. Compared to Judas, I mean, Judas betrayed him. And you look at Peter and you think, man, he's a good disciple. Who determines who's a good disciple? What standard do we use? Who determines if you're a good mother? Who determines if I'm a good father or a good husband? Who determines if you're a good church member or if I'm a good pastor? Who determines these things? It's God Himself. God is the one who sets the standard. He is the one whose reality we need to come in contact with and submit ourselves to. It's His standard that we are going to be finally judged Jesus was, was putting Peter to the test right here. We tend to interpret the world around us as based upon our, our own moral judgments, our own moral conscience, instead of going to God's Word and just letting God speak to us through His Word and inform us how we are to react. We go around, I think, with false reality built upon a house of cards based upon the status quo of the society and the world that we live in. And someday when we stand before God, that house of cards is going to come crumbling down. And we're going to look and we're going to say, man, 
It wasn't the way I thought it was. It's all different. Jesus, God, expects more of us than we think. God expects more of us than we think. Let's look at Christ's gracious response. He graciously heals the man. He, he picks up the ear, puts it back on. John doesn't give us that. But he was very gracious in doing that. This is what to do. How do we handle crisis? Now, Jesus, he was this lamb being led to the slaughter. But he was no victim. He was no victim. In chapter 12, it says that he, he said, I lay down my life and the Father has given me authority to lay it down and to take it up again. He's doing this with, with purpose and intention. He is no victim. He is in control. Look at verse 4, though. The first thing Jesus does, so when Jesus, knowing all of these things, now He knows these things, supernatural knowledge, He is God, He knows these things are coming upon Him, and He went forth. That is courage. That is boldness. Christ was bold in the face of danger. But now... Like I said, he had this knowledge. If we had this knowledge, then maybe we wouldn't be so bold. Is that that's kind of the way we think? If I was God, boy, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I have knowledge. You know what? We have knowledge. We have been given knowledge. And with that knowledge, we should know how to live life. We should have a confidence, a boldness to life. And in addition to that knowledge... The Word of God, we also have the promises of God that He will, that He is in sovereign control, that He is in control of all of these things. I like the proverb that says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Paul told Timothy, uh, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind or self-discipline. We can be bold. Jesus was bold. Second of all, Christ was protective Christ was protective of those who, uh, those in his care. Look at verse 8. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. If uh, you seek me, let these go. Now, he is personally responsible for these men that are under him. And he's, he's protecting them for a purpose. He says, so not one of them would perish. Or not one of them would be lost. He would not lose one of them. He, he was protecting these men. He knew that these men couldn't handle this. They couldn't handle this trial. They were not prepared for this. They were not, they did not have the Holy Spirit. They, they could not sit and, and go through the grilling and the beating that they, that Jesus was going to have. And so he said, let them go. He was the one that they wanted. Now, that should bring to mind this. I mean, he was, he was protecting us. This same Savior, it, it said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape also, so that you may be able to bear it. He is that kind of a shepherd. Jesus is that kind of God that He, can, he knows how much these men can take. And he says, no, no, these men are not able to do this. I'm going to protect them. And he sets them apart. Boy, it just reminds me of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. This passage is so good. Talking about the Messiah to come and, and his glorious reign. But even in that, 
He is going to judge. And let me read Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my choice one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will, he will bring forth judgment to the nations. Now, this is Christ, and this is when he is reigning. But look at the kind of reign that he has in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A dim, a dim burning wick he will not extinguish. Just those two phrases. The broken, the bruised, he knows that. He knows that. He will comfort them. He will not put them under too much stress that they cannot handle. In a crisis situation, you know that you need to know that. <laughs> I need to know that. Lord, I know this is a crisis situation, but I know that you are the kind of shepherd that you know if I'm bruised. You know if I'm a, a dim uh, little candle that can, can, can just be uh, put out so, so quickly. But you know what? He knows those things. So we are to be encouraged. We are to be encouraged by this kind of shepherd. How sensitive Jesus was to these men and their needs. In His hour of need, He was concerned about them and, and He protected them. He's that kind of Savior. We need to be encouraged by that. The next thing, Christ knew what needed to be done. Christ knew what needed to be done. In verse 11, So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup. This, this suffering that I'm going to go through. He knew what needed to be done. This needed to be done. And He was going to do it. He knew the time. He knew the place. He knew His role in these things. And He was going to... He was going to fulfill that. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And I love this. This corresponds with the verses that we read earlier. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and, I will, and you will find rest for your soul. My my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We take upon ourselves God's responsibility. We take upon ourselves uh, the responsibilities that God has for us. We know what needs to be done. And it's not hard. He gives us the strength to do it. He gives us the strength to do it. And He is, he is able to... to uh, take us through trials. He is able to uh, allow us to go through these trials in a way that pleases Him and fulfill our responsibility because His burden is light. What He has called us to do is, is not burdensome. Not burdensome. And in number four, what Peter should have done and what Christ did, He yielded to the Father's will. He yielded to the Father's will. He said, shall I not drink it? This is what the Father has for me. Shall I not drink it? Should I not do it? He was just simply living out his life. John, looking back over Christ's life, he, he summarized Christ's life in a few words. In chapter 1, and verse 14, he says, And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even in Christ's hour of distress, 
he was full of grace and truth. Even when he was being led astray or led away for the slaughter. In times of crisis, Christians are to emulate Christ's gracious response, not some kind of impulsive reaction. We're to keep our eyes upon Jesus. We're to interpret the circumstances of our life in light of His teaching. Interpret those things in our life in light of what He says and know how to evaluate those because He is the one to determine if we are a good servant of Christ or a bad servant of Christ. He's the standard. He's the standard. And then we just need to trust in God, isn't it? We... uh, We tend to be like Peter, though. We think we're good disciples. We think we're good uh, followers. We're good learners. But in reality, many times, what we think we know is just a house of cards and it will come crashing down in trials. It will not hold up many times. So what we do is we go back to God's Word and we rebuild this house of cards and we build it upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You, Lord, for being a gracious God, for Christ Jesus setting such a positive, such a perfect example for us, even in His hour of trials, even His hour of of testing and, and great distress. He knew what was happening. He knew what was going on. He was the perfect example for us. He perfectly trusted you. Depending upon you. Lord, thank you for setting him an example before our eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.